It's good. So today we're, we're going to be talking about how Jesus changes who we are, how Jesus changes our, our very nature, our character, all of that. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, and I'm going to read it for us, and we're going to get into that. Uh, it says this, it says, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make, send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his, sorry, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. And Jesus called to them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went out throughout, throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. This is God's word. In high school, you probably had a great career counselor at some point who tried to tell you, you know, like to, you know, shoot for the stars or something really poetic like that. At your high school graduation, someone at some point referenced, you know, Dr. Seuss's prophetic work, Oh, the Places You'll Go. Perhaps after you left that graduation, you were full of excitement about this career path that you were certain that you were going to take. Like you knew exactly what you were going to do and you couldn't wait to get started in, you know, your apprenticeship school or in college or whatever it was. And you had mapped it out and you were full of excitement. You know, you knew your university, your major, the whole deal. Or maybe you were like a whole lot of other people who just sort of left that high school graduation, went to a party, and then just sort of took a bunch of series of next steps to find, you know, what, what all of those people had told you would be your fulfillment in life. Either way, you discovered through some series of decisions this magical future of work. It was really exciting. You achieved degrees, you built your resume, all of that. You anxiously pursued that first corporation job or that studio or that firm or that factory that would give you the chance to seek out that fulfillment. You know, you got the job, you woke up on that first day, you presented yourself eager and ready to get on with the calling of your life. Uh, but not really your true calling because that was just an entry-level job, right? Your true calling would be later, after you paid your dues and got some experience, then you'd get promoted, right? And then now in that promotion, now you've stepped into that calling in life, right? Except, well, not really, though you've been promoted, you have people that work for you now. They're, you're not working with the right clients, on the right projects, on the right things that you imagined. So it's not really your fulfillment yet. But after a while, you begin to gain some experience, maybe push a few other people out of the way, get to some place where you're like, here I am. Finally, I'm working with the clients. I'm doing all of the things that I wanted to, the projects, everything. I found my calling and I feel significance. Except then you say, well, I got to wait for the awards or the accolades or the banquets, uh, or the nice, you know, buffets in your honor. And that's when you'll know for sure you've achieved all of that stuff. You've reached the stars. You've chased your dreams. Your career has called you, and you answered, and you are satisfied. Except you aren't, and it doesn't. It doesn't satisfy you, and you don't feel all filled up on the inside. 
In Los Angeles, we have the privilege of being dreamers and achievers, right? Like since the 1920s, they've been calling us the dream factory. Uh, And we're people who just passionately pursue our vocational aspirations, right? Our occupations, we put so much into it. And most of us, a lot of us achieve them. You know, if we're still living here, it's because in some small way, we've achieved at least a path forward to getting there. But those of us who achieve them and those who, who don't achieve our goals, we still are left unsatisfied. It didn't mean what we thought it would mean. It doesn't feel how people told us it would feel. In the end, it's just work. And often some really important, significant stuff, like putting rockets into space or getting commercials and the Super Bowl, or winning awards, or consulting corporations, or making legal defenses in courtrooms, or teaching children how to read. It just all doesn't feel like we thought it would feel. It doesn't do what we thought it would do. One of the most empty moments of my whole life was when I got this book published. I wanted to be a writer since I was in middle school. I actually publish myself. You know, you could buy little blank books and fill it all out. And I was like, I walked around selling it to people. I thought it was really cool. And then the whole zine movement happened. And I was like, I'm super published now. I'm printing stuff off in the library and selling it to people for five cents. But then there was that moment where I actually got a book published. And the empty moment came when the first edition came in the mail and I opened it and I looked at it. And I just felt so, so empty. Major publisher Zondervan They are the ones who print the Bible, so like kind of a big deal. Uh, They they pursued and bought it. One of the best literary agents in the whole field had chosen me and my book to be published. And he fought for me. We had a great deal, you know, like the Bible printing people were really scared of us because we had this great agent. And that felt significant. It received really great prominent reviews from peers and famous people. Before there was the This Cultural Moment podcast, John Mark Comer and Mark Sayers endorsed my book. All right? So that's how, that's how big of a deal that was. Yeah, thank you. This guy, Matt Chandler, who talks in front of lots of people, pushed the book like crazy. I felt like, man, this is so good. Now, it wasn't a bestseller. Didn't get on any list like that. But it, it definitely moved. It wasn't, I don't know if it was super well read but it was super well purchased. Yeah, exactly. It's how we bought a house. It felt so great. Uh, As I opened that box, though, I found a congratulatory note from someone at the publishing house and then just this copy. And it was one of the most empty moments I have ever felt. I thought I would feel so satisfied when I had a book with my name on it, but I didn't. And then I thought I would feel so important and like there would, there would be this sense of accomplishment when I put my name on a contract, but I didn't. I thought, okay, when people read it and they come and they tell me how important it was to them or I read all the reviews, then I'll be like, okay, happy and I'm content. By the way, it's got 4.8 stars on Amazon and still it means nothing to me. Lastly, I thought, surely when I hold it in my hand, I will know peace. But I didn't. Accomplishing that dream didn't do anything inside of me until I chased it through other endeavors, 
exhausted, defeated, discouraged, I finally realized, man, that book doesn't change the world and it doesn't change me. Holding the book, hearing the things that people said about it, all of that did not do anything inside of me. I thought maybe my dream was too big, you know, because I thought maybe that book would change the world and then when it didn't, you know, uh, I thought maybe it's too big of a dream. No, my dream is way too small. Uh, there's a Portuguese poet named Fernando Pessoa, who is a great poet. You should read. I have books of his in English, so you don't even have to know Portuguese. But he says this. He says, a person is the size of their dreams. And what he's talking about is, is the, the weight, the heaviness, the reality of a person matches up completely with their dreams. And see, what I think is that you and I, our dreams and the dream of, oh, the places you'll go is not too big or extravagant, but is too small. We are too small. They just, the, the pursuing of a job just does not accomplish what we thought it could. And now our jobs and our careers are all so important. It's how we participate and, and the stewarding of the earth and the world. It's how we collaborate across society, business and schools and hospitals and art. All of that is how we reflect the very image of God, but it does not make us new. It doesn't, you know, finding a job, that's easy. It really is. Discovering a purpose, a big dream that that you can fit your entire self into, that is really hard. What Jesus knows is true is that casting nets will never be enough. That's what he talks about here. There's these guys who are out there and they're casting nets. They're doing a big thing for society. It's through them that people eat. But he looks at them and says, casting nets will never be enough for the human soul. And Jesus doesn't let us settle for a dream of accomplishing things in this world. His dream is to make you new. Jesus' first stop on the trail of kingdom come was these shores and these ships. Walking along the Sea of Galilee, he sees two sets of middle-aged brothers. He saw who they were. He saw what they were doing. And he called them into a promise that fulfills the very purpose of their existence and our existence. He calls them into transformation because humanity was made for more than building things. We were made for more than doing things. We were made to live inside of a hope, all nestled up and cozy. We were made to follow. We were made to be transformed. We were made to hear good news about Jesus and who he is and how we become through him. The calling of Jesus, the stuff that he says to these disciples, echoes the beginning of all things. You know, the scriptures start with this duality of activity. God talks, God speaks, and then God makes. Like that's the duality of of all the activity of God. He speaks, and then then he makes light. He speaks, and then he makes plants. He speaks, and then animals. God speaks, and then water and land appear. And that's the whole dialogue of creation. He says, let us make, and then in its making, and when it's completed, he says, this is good. In Genesis chapter 2, we get this wonderful poem that describes God crouching down low into the soil and breathing life into Adam. Out of dust, God makes the image of God. God speaks and God makes. Out of nothing, out of dust, he breathes life. And then here Jesus says, 
follow me and I will make. He speaks and then he makes. The calling of Jesus also echoes the promise of Israel and Abraham and Sarah. He goes to the shepherding couple and he says, go to the land I will show you and I will make you into a family of blessing. The covenant was simple. He says, follow me and I will make. Follow me and I will make you a family of blessing. And then God led them, we're told, throughout Genesis around the Middle East. And here they were, this barren couple leaving this very fertile rivers of modern day Iran. And God spoke and he led them to a new land. And arriving, they gave birth to an unlikely child. God spoke and then God made. God made Abraham and Sarah's descendants into the family. And then here Jesus says the same thing. He's echoing the same vocabulary, the same duality that God operates in the world. Jesus says, follow me and I will make. The Israelites became bound into slavery under the pharaohs of Egypt. And Egypt crushed their psyche, crushed them with oppression through rape and racism and slave labor. They just totally destroyed their souls. Uh, The Bible sort of talks about that as they were forced to make bricks without straw, meaning They carried the demands of life without the necessities to do life. Have you ever felt like that? How many of us live in the demands of life without the necessary requirements for life? And then God, in the clearest picture of his character, liberates these people out of Egypt. He carries them out into the desert. And there he says this to them. He says, I have taken you out of Egypt and I've saved you. You will be my people and I will be your God. He says, I will make you a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. God spoke the promise of becoming to a people. He said, I'm going to make you. And then he makes them. Makes them into this wonderful little nation of priests that reflect to the whole world what God is supposed to be like through the way that they live. In the wilderness, God's new kingdom was born and these beautiful, broken people. He makes a nation, a kingdom of holiness. And this is the operation and the vocabulary of God in our world. He speaks and he makes himself known to dust. He makes himself known to the wanderer in the desert, to the captive, to the burned out. And his words are always about the creating of something new. Trust me, this is just three stories, but you could go through the whole Old Testament and what Jesus is speaking or what God is speaking and doing is always a creation of something new out of something old and ragged. God speaks into the life of those who've fallen short of the glory of the human existence and he says, become alive. He speaks into the emptiness of those who've been forsaken. And he says, I will lead you and I will make you. He enters the soul of the oppressed and he says, be free, be mine. To the least resourced, like a newly freed slave in the desert, he says, I will make you become the centerpiece of my whole vision for the world. Jesus speaks and Jesus makes. He says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. 
And so when Peter and Andrew and James and John heard Jesus come and say, follow me and I will make, they heard the voice of God in the cadence of God, in the syntax of God, in the vocabulary of God, creating the substance of God's work. Like that's what they were hearing. Why did they leave everything? It's because they were hearing exactly how God speaks all the time. And for you, you might wonder, what does it sound like for God to talk to me? Or what, is it, what does that even mean? That's like so bizarre. What is he calling me into? What is he encouraging me into? God's voice always sounds something like, come to me and I will make. They weren't hearing a sales pitch from a startup. They weren't hearing the, the voice of someone saying, hey, join my thing. And then eventually you can make some, you know, downstream marketing funds. They were hearing the voice of the one who made them. And when you hear Jesus say, come and follow me, you are not hearing the pitch of someone who wants to, you know, make your life better, like through yoga or diet or better, you know, retirement plan. You're not hearing that sort of stuff. What you're hearing is the voice of the one who created the world and who created you saying, I want to make you new. And like all the times before, Jesus' promise to make was into a new identity. Our ears struggled to kind of understand and have an orientation around an identity that doesn't come from something we do, but comes from something somebody else does. That, that God and his actions and his words makes us something new. Because we think that it's what we say and what we do that makes us, right? In our perspective, it's, it's the way that we even learn something about somebody else. It's like, hey, what do you do for a living? Now I know, a, you know 90% of who you are because I know what your job is. And then if I'm really curious and I really want to be cool, I'll say, hey, where are you from? Okay, that's another 5%. Now I know what you do for a living, where you're from or where you live. Now I know almost everything I need to know about you. And if we're still super curious or if the party's really long and we run out of things to talk about, we'll say, hey, so what are your hobbies? What are you interested in? What do you, what do, you do for fun? And then bam, we have the full picture of a person. Because a person for us is found in active verbs. What the doing, the working, the winning, the learning, the moving, the sleeping, the playing, that's where we find out who someone is, is in all of those active verbs. The better you do those things, the better you are. What you do with those things tells us exactly who you are. And it's exhausting trying to prove to yourself and to others exactly who you are. The men Jesus talks to were fishermen because they fish. I love that little parenthesis there. It's like Mark and Matthew don't know that we know what the word fisherman means. It's like, well, it's because they were fishing. I'd love it. And then, it, then if you're still not sure, it's like, and they had nets and they were on a boat. It's like, how dense do they think we are? Pretty dense. Uh, but to them and to, Jesus, and to us, Jesus corrects. It's like, you are not fishermen because you fish. You are not what you do because you do those things. He says, I will make you become. And in his speaking and in his doing, he's making us new, making an identity for us. And it's nothing that we've earned. It's nothing that we've worked for. No, the action verbs are not 
who, what defines us, what we become defined by is now the words and the actions of Jesus. Instead of becoming through our jobs and our aspirations and our achievements, we become through all of his achievements, all of his accomplishments, all of his doing. We become alive because he's alive. We become free because Jesus was the most free. We become whole because he's the most whole. We become liberated because he was the one who liberates us. It's all what he does. If you want to know, who am I in Christ, someone who follows Jesus, all you have to do is trace the activities of Jesus and say, I'm the recipient of that. Now that's who I am. Follow and become, he says. And it's so much deeper, so much deeper than a you know, self-improvement plan. He says, I will make you become who you were always intended to be. Because just as God crouched down into the dirt and the soil and breathed life into it with an intention, it wasn't like God got down and blew some dirt up and it's like, wow, that's a person. I didn't know that's what I was making. No, God got so intentional and close and decided I'm going to make a person exactly like this. And then through sin and evil and destruction and the wounds that happen to us, we get completely broken and charred and and put away from who we are supposed to be. And then what God says is, I am making you who you were always supposed to be. That's what he's doing. How does he do that? There's this prophet, Jeremiah, who gives us a picture of that, of his work. You can read it in Jeremiah chapter 18. One day, this prophet, God told, hey, go to a potter's house. And when you're there, I want you to look and watch this potter do his thing. And in those days, pottery was like the fundamental requirement of society. It's how they stored food. It's how they got water. It's even how they told the story of who they were as a people with the artists sort of depicting on the clay the story of the people. It was incredibly important. So Jeremiah, this guy goes and he watches this potter sitting down at this wheel, wheel, uh, wheel, wheel, He sits down and he puts a lump of clay on it and he begins to turn it. He begins to shape it. And then the potter says, you know, this is not what I intended to make. It's all lumpy. It's all weird. So the potter puts his hands back into the clay, pushes it to the side, starts again with the very same wet, muddy stuff. And he works it and works it until he sits back and he says, and this is the words, it's good now. This is what I intended to make. And this is how... Jesus makes us new with his hands deeply involved in our lives, never giving up, never stopping and saying, well, you know what? I made Brad. He's a little lumpy. Oh, well, let's start a new one. He's like, no, I'm going to put my hands to this clay until it is exactly what I said it was going to be. Michelangelo famously described his sort of methodology for sculpting. I don't know how accurate it is because I've tried to sculpt things before. But he says this. He says, every block of stone has a statue inside of it. And it's the task of the sculptor to discover it. I saw the angel in the marble and I carved until I set him free. This is the work of Jesus in your life. He's, what, what everyone else sees is just stone or something that could just easily be tossed aside. Jesus says, no, no, I see beauty and masterpiece inside of the stone and I will carve and I will chisel until I set you free. 
Jesus calls us to yield, and he will make us become. Jesus calls out the image of God within us when everyone else thinks that we couldn't reflect anything beautiful. He sees a child of God within us. He sees humanity lurking inside of your soul. He sees more, not less. He sees riches, not rags. He sees the design of your entire destiny, and he says, I will make you become who you are always supposed to be. Becoming, it's obviously a process, it's longevity, it's commitment, and it's his commitment. Where he says, come, stand close to me over the course of days, over the course of weeks, over the course of years, over the course of a lifetime. And as you do, you'll experience an apprenticeship to abundant, full life. While your commitment will wane, and you'll get distracted by all sorts of things, and you'll spend weeks where you're like, what did I do this week? I watch kids play soccer and practice soccer. And that's how your life will go for a bit. But his commitment to making you new in all of the stuff that you think is unimportant, he is carving away the stone and setting you free. And it's not all at once, but Jesus doesn't promise, hey, when you finally finish that project, I'll promote you and you'll be like me. It's going to be cool. He doesn't offer a six-month personal development plan. He doesn't try to get you certified in being a good person. Jesus' invitation is to be made completely new, and it comes without an expiration date or without a deadline. Everything else has a deadline in our lives, but his work in you doesn't. The become of Jesus is just never-ending, and it's never divorced from his stewardship to you. He envelops his, your existence into him. And he says, I will make you become fishers of people. When Jesus calls these brothers, he calls them into exactly what he knows they're going to become. And all of our creative work, we do the exact same thing. Like when you build a house, it all starts with a big hole in the ground and a bunch of rocks and wood and nails and tools, right? Like that's what it looks like. And no one who shows up to that job site says, hey, you know what I'm working on today is a hole in the ground. I'm working on dust. I'm working on wood, right? We show up and we say, I'm making a house, right? Does that make sense? When you get your pen and your paper and you're sitting down on a beautiful morning and, you know, your spouse or your friend asks you, hey, what are you doing? You don't say, I'm working on pen and paper. You say, I'm writing a poem, right? Like that's how this works. When Jesus comes and he sees us, he tells us exactly what we are going to become through his creative work. And he tells these people, I'm going to make you fishers of people. He goes and he takes them in exactly where they are in doing what they're doing, and he shifts it and he alters it into fulfillment. It's how he always works. With Abram, that was his name in the beginning, and and then God says, I'm going to make you Abraham. Abram means father. Abraham means father of many nations. Jesus sees these guys who are men who fish because they fish. This is where it matters. And he says, I'm going to make you become fishers of people. And they will become that because he's speaking a new reality into an old place, into an old identity. He's going to make them compassionate. He's going to make them just. He's going to make them loving. He's going to make them gracious. He's going to make them unifiers and peacemakers and chaos. 
He's going to make them ambassadors for wholeness. No longer will their concern end with nets in the water, but it's going to be extended to neighbors and humanity. That's how God works. Gandhi said, he actually didn't say this, but it's attributed to him, and you see it on bumper stickers. So that's what we're going to do. Gandhi said, we must be the change we want to see in the world. Right? That's an inspiring quote. This is what Jesus says. He says, I will make you become the change I will create in this world. That's what this whole thing is about. And this happens when we find our hope in him. He doesn't just make us whole. He makes us ministers of hope. He makes us good vessels, beautifully crafted to go into the darkness. And so we are going to be, and we will always try to be, a church that believes in the transformation of people. Scott McKnight, who's a professor, he wrote this. He says, if the gospel you're preaching isn't about transformation, it isn't the gospel of the Bible. I love that quote. That quote's one of my favorites. I say it a lot. Because it helps me know what I'm supposed to do. And it helps you know what you're supposed to do. It helps us know what kind of church, whenever we say, and we have the word written all over the place, the gospel, if what we're preaching and what we're talking about is, hey, here's the good news, here's the gospel about how to work harder and be better, or how to be the most, you know, just people, how to be the most woke, how to be whatever it might be, how to be the most emotionally stable people. If it's not about transformation, then it's just not the good news of Jesus, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What Paul is saying here is we all who gaze and look to Jesus and learn to follow Jesus, we are all being transformed ever increasingly one degree after the next into the image of Jesus. And that is what he is doing in our church. At least that's what our expectation ought to be of what he is doing in our church. Our church is not setting up tears. It's not singing songs. What we long to is we're longing and clinging to the fact that he will transform all of us. We aspire to be that kind of church where we see him year over year crafting each of us into his masterpiece, into the very image of God. What we expect as leaders from you is not so much, I mean, it's important you got to show up, you know, to hear me talk and all that stuff. That's a big deal, I guess. But our biggest hope is not perfect attendance. Our biggest hope is not, hey, you read your Bible every day. Our deep, sincere hope is that if we didn't see each other for a year again, we would come back and we would say, God made you new. I cannot believe you're one degree closer to glory than I thought you were. And here's the deal. We as people, we look to people and we see all of their wounds. In your community, you see, man, this person's so messed up. And what we miss, though, and we never say, we never gaze in like some angels looking in on us. We never look intently and say, oh my gosh, you've changed from one degree of glory to the next. May we be a people that encourage each other and say, look, you're right here today, but now I see you graciously loving someone when you used to not. 
I, say, I see you now saying the, the name of Jesus with love and affection. You used to say with bitterness. Do we have eyes to behold the glory, not just of Jesus, but the degrees of glory happening within us? We expect to see your brokenness made whole. Your wounds turned into glory. Like that's an expect, that's baseline. We expect to see your marriage resurrected, your entire being satisfied and content. Not only that, we expect to be part of it with each other. We're not butterflies or caterpillars who just eat, 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 and then get in a cocoon and come out. We're dependent on one another for this transformation. If Jesus gave an inspiring message at a high school graduation, he would say, I think, I'm now super putting words in Jesus' mouth, but he said, I think he would say, Oh, the people you will become through me. Oh, the people I will love through you. His rousing speech would plead, your humanity cannot be reduced to what you produce. My dream for you is bigger than your dream. My view of you is deeper than your view of who you are. Come follow me and I will make you become. So maybe today is the day that you begin to yield to God to make you new. Where you answer that call, the voice of God speaking in the vocabulary of God, follow me and I will make. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the goodness of the reality that you have such bigger expectations for us uh, than we have. God, I pray for us to this week press into that reality that you are making us a people, that you're transforming us, that that's the good news. God, I pray for us to take it seriously, but to take it joyfully too. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.